Welcome to Fast Company Digest, essential stories from tech, design, impact, and work life narrated by Noah App. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor and host of the New Way We Work podcast, Kathleen Davis. Here are this week's stories. First, Fast Company's advertising expert, Jeff Beer, digs into the long, strange branding history of the letter X and exactly why Elon Musk's decision to change Twitter's name was a huge marketing blunder. Narrated by Noah. Listen to more of the world's best journalism on the Noah app or at newsoveraudio.com. For Noah, this is Sam Scholl reading from Fast Company. We're on the 29th of July, 2023. Jeff Beer writes, Elon Musk and the weird history of Brand X. It's been a very long week, so let's just say it again, one last time, loud for the people in the back and get it out of our system. The rebranding of Twitter to X is dumb. Dumb in the way that there are 44 billion reasons why intentionally tanking a globally recognized brand might not be the best strategy for building a business. But here's the thing. It's also dumb in ways that aren't immediately apparent. A rebrand is one thing, but the use of X itself, specifically, only further confounds as to why Musk chose it as the mark of the future state of interactivity. If you dig into the long, strange brand and marketing history of X, this stupidity has a blast radius that should give anyone pause before ever considering the 24th letter of the alphabet for marketing or branding any product or company. Maybe not ever, but certainly for the foreseeable future, and probably longer just to be safe. More than half a century ago, Brand X had a clearly defined identity in the culture. It was the other guy, the one so unspeakably inferior that you dare not utter its name. X was the well-worn mystery alternative of comparative advertising the unnamed box that brand-name deodorants, detergents, soaps, razors, and more would compare themselves to in commercials, as in, 9 out of 10 people pick Gillette razors over brand X. It's a device still somehow in practice, as a recent Mayo ad from the Philippines can attest. The Federal Trade Commission thought the idea of brand X was played out by 1972, when it convinced the TV networks to lift their ban on ads that mention competition by name. So, let that sink in. The government recognized, 51 years ago, that X was a meaningless signifier, and the American consumer was sophisticated enough to handle something like the Pepsi Challenge, which kicked off just a few years later in 1975. X was dead, or so one might have thought. Of course, X actually had one home in the early 1970s, the X rating, originally classified in 1968 by the Motion Picture Association of America, or MPAA, was for any film deemed only suitable for adults. Initially, it applied to challenging films as diverse as the Oscar winner Midnight Cowboy and cult classic A Clockwork Orange. It also became affixed to the first mainstream pornography movies, distributed in theaters at that time. With the early success of X-rated titles, porn distributors then got increasingly creative, trying to entice audiences with completely fictional and exaggerated adaptations of the rating, such as Double X and Triple X. This led to confusion and ultimately the decline in broader popularity of anything remotely associated with X by the mid-1970s. As a certain billionaire might reply online, 
Interesting. X became so degraded that even the most boundary-pushing filmmakers did whatever they could to make sure their films qualified for the more palatable R rating. The MPAA rebranded X as NC-17 in 1990. The late 1970s saw the formation and popularity of two punk bands, the UK's Generation X and Los Angeles-based X, both of which tapped into whatever mystery and danger was left in the letter. Generation X didn't last more than a few years and broke up by 1979, while X's best, most critically acclaimed album, Los Angeles, debuted in 1981. In the corporate world, troubled brands that had stagnated in the face of nimbler competition began circling the letter X to convey innovation. Take General Motors' X-Car Project, for example, which officially launched in 1979. The bold new car design concept straddled a Super Friends-esque spectrum of GM models and brands. The Chevy Citation, Buick Skylark, Pontiac Phoenix, and Oldsmobile Omega and aimed to fundamentally change the automotive landscape. The X-Car family, though, was plagued with just about any and every production and performance issue possible, and instead ended up standing for catastrophic failure. Douglas Coupland's 1991 bestseller, Generation X, went a long way to help define the generation overshadowed by the baby boomers. Coupland told the Boston Globe at the time that part of the novel's goal was to show how people born after 1960 Think about things differently than boomers. We're sick of stupid labels. We're sick of being marginalized in lousy jobs. And we're tired of hearing about ourselves from others, he said. There's even a chapter called, I am not a target market. Spoiler alert, brands and advertisers believed otherwise. By 1995, the growing popularity of action sports, such as skateboarding and BMX biking, gave rise to ESPN's Extreme Games, which was quickly shortened to the X Games. Brands did not want to miss out on the adrenaline-pumped popularity of Tony Hawk. So, culture was inundated with all things X. To live truly on the edge, you needed to shave with Schick Extreme Shaving Foam. And why use regular deodorant when you can slap some right guard extreme on those pits? This X-inspired lifestyle hit the road in 1999 when Nissan launched its Xterra SUV, aimed at people who rode rapids on bodyboards and mountains on off-road skateboards. Then it was gaming in 2001, when Microsoft launched the Xbox. By then, likely thanks to extreme overexposure, the shine on names with X had begun to dull, even as Microsoft's marketing department had only been using that name as a placeholder, until focus groups told them otherwise. Five years later, given its desperation to appear cool in the shadow of Apple's iPod, it's a minor miracle Microsoft didn't name its MP3 player the Xune. Imagine the effect on an ambitious 20-something in that moment when every company wanted to reach you but was being told you're simply unreachable. If only there were a secret symbol you could flash that this company gets you, so, you know, give us all your money. After he sold his first startup, the online city guide Zip2 to Compaq for $307 million in 1999, Musk founded an internet financial superstore that he dubbed X.com. It aimed to be an all-in-one online bank, mortgage, and insurance broker, and mutual fund company. Part of the company's marketing was to pay people for referring new customers with $20 and $10 cash cards. Sound familiar? However, X.com eventually was forced to merge with PayPal, which then led to a brand tug-of-war to decide which name the new company would be known by. 
Investors wanted to stick to online payments, but Musk was determined to keep pushing for what today we might call his Everything App version of X. It was a fixation that inevitably led to his infamous 2000 ousting from the company. PayPal, as it would be known, would go on to sell eBay for $1.5 billion in 2002. The same year Vin Diesel tried and failed to make spy movies extreme with Triple X. Before the PayPal merger, Musk sat down with a writer from an online magazine to discuss his ambitions. The reporter asked him about the company name. You know, the ads for Tide, where there is a name brand and Brand X and Brand X always loses? Well, our ads can be like that, except that Brand X wins. 24 years later, Musk doesn't believe in advertising, and Brand X has yet to score a big win. But hey, X springs eternal. You were listening to Fast Company, where Jeff Beer writes, Elon Musk and the Weird History of Brand X. This article was published on the 29th of July, 2023, and was read by Sam Scholl for NOAA. Next, we look at Shopify's new tool that calculates the financial cost of every meeting and explain how meetings themselves are not the root of our productivity issues. You're listening to Fast Company, where on the 31st of July, 2023, Matt Martin, the co-founder and CEO of Clockwise, writes, Shopify's new meeting cost calculator is well-intentioned but it's not addressing the issue. Back in January 2023, Shopify made headlines by cancelling 322,000 hours of recurring meetings from their employees' calendars. A few weeks ago, they took it one step further by launching a tool that calculates the financial cost of every meeting based on meeting length and average compensation for the roles in attendance. A memo to employees read, Your calendar is a strategy and the Meeting Cost Calculator helps you make informed decisions for organising or accepting meetings. You're empowered to decline meetings that aren't necessary, when attending ensure they're efficient. I admire Shopify taking bold action. That said, I believe that this isn't inherently true. A calculator doesn't magically make employees feel empowered to decline meetings whenever they want. The root of mismanaged meetings is cultural, and to change a culture requires strategy, ownership, and planning from leadership, not just the individual employee. Without a culture shift, I can promise that the meetings will come back, and they'll come back in the same disorganised and uncoordinated manner that they began. To build a productive meeting culture, every company needs a senior executive, CEO, COO, HR leaders, or CFO, to fully own the culture of time management. Shopify has this in spades with COO Kaz Majetian. He's deeply passionate about the topic, which is an important first step. Cancelling recurring meetings, or adding a dollar amount to meetings, are great spot solutions, and can certainly play a part in an overall strategy. But here are four other things companies should consider to maximise impact. Meetings themselves are not the root of our productivity issues. The real problem is that the way we think about time is broken. We tend to think of time in individual boxes, a mostly static grid of squares that is unique to each person, and now with a dollar value for each person. If we truly want to change collective meeting culture, 
we have to start thinking about time as a collective resource and something that should be optimized for the greater good of the individual and the company. What's more important than whether an individual attends one meeting is whether that meeting is scheduled at a time that optimizes for the greatest number of people's schedules, whether the meeting is in work hours and how the meeting supports collective productivity within the organization. Every business partner should have a budget allocated to tools that empower their teams to work more effectively and productively. Take advantage of technologies for tracking priorities, managing calendars and optimizing meeting schedules that enable teams to find more time for meaningful work without necessarily having to cancel meetings. These types of solutions ensure that, even when leadership isn't paying attention, progress continues. When rolling out tools, it's ideal to do so company-wide. Even if you try it first with a smaller team, you eventually need to commit to organizational change. When there's fragmented utilization, it's much more challenging to shift culture. Once there's a system in place, regularly auditing calendars and reviewing time management allocations across teams is important because it allows leadership to both identify areas for improvement and understand company-wide outcomes. When the right system is in place, leadership should be able to understand the impact of time management improvements on key business metrics, whether it's increased sales velocity or faster product innovation. The way we consume time varies drastically across teams and roles. Individual contributors tend to have more time for focused work in their week, whereas executives are meeting heavy, and managers tend to fall somewhere in between. Not to mention, every individual has their own preferences around calendar management, things like when they generally like to take lunch, or if they want meeting breaks on particularly busy days. Creating an environment where employees feel comfortable taking control and empowered to provide feedback on how they spend their time is essential for leadership to identify patterns at scale. Leadership should encourage a continuous feedback loop, encouraging employees to share their thoughts and suggestions for improvements. This open communication can help to identify pain points in the current time management processes that are in place, so adjustments can be made using both a top-down and bottom-up perspective. Shopify has taken a firm stance that, in harmony with their core philosophies around time management, may lead to meaningful time optimizations. Many others continue to merely suffer through the status quo, but taking a meaningful first step is how to provoke change. Just remember to think bigger at a cultural level to drive a true business transformation. You are listening to Fast Company, where Matt Martin writes, Shopify's new meeting cost calculator is well-intentioned, but it's not addressing the issue. This article was published on the 31st of July 2023 and was read by Martin Buchanan for NOAA.